When I was in the seminary, uh, I came across a phrase in a book about discerning your vocation that I found really, really helpful at the time. The phrase was presumption of permanence. And the priest who was writing the book was basically um, talking about people like me at that stage in my life where you're sort of, you're discerning your vocation, but at the same time you're preparing for your vocation. So a seminarian, someone in the seminary, um, is preparing to be a priest, but many seminarians are also discerning whether or not this is really my call. And so some, roughly half of men who enter the seminary, leave the seminary at some point, decide, actually, this isn't my vocation. Um, Well, I was sort of in that stage of like, is this my vocation or is this not my vocation? And the presumption of permanence, he said, is that point at which the seminarian, the one discerning, decides that I presume that this call I am hearing is permanent and that unless something radical happens, something crazy, like I get kicked out of the seminary, I am going to be a priest. And so I'm no longer discerning, I'm being formed, I'm preparing. And it was very difficult. That's a, that's a difficult thing to do. I mean, I was about two years into the seminary at the time. I had let go of many plans. I uh, had studied biochemistry at the University of Illinois. I let go of um, going into grad school for that uh, in favor of going to the seminary. I had fought forest fires for a couple summers, and I was thinking about going up to Alaska to do that. And I thought, you know what, if I do that now, I might never go to seminary. I should just skip that plan and, and, and go to seminary. I had planned on getting married when I was in college, but um, I had left that, at least for the time being, aside in order to discern this vocation. I had left all sorts of plans in order to try to follow God's will. But this was something more permanent. This was like actually letting those go. Actually saying, you know what, God? I believe that what I'm hearing is true, and I'm going all the way. You know, I'm not going to, in my mind, sort of half, have one foot in and one foot out. So I did that, and it was because I was able to, ha- I had this, and I've talked about this in other homilies and other talks, this profound experience of the Eucharist while on an eight-day silent retreat. And I, for the first time, saw Jesus, and, and it was like, okay, everything that I've said I believed, everything that I have thought I believed, now I really believe, believe, down into the heart, not just in the head. And I believed God to be on my side. It was a bit like Jesus telling Simon Peter to put the nets over the side and getting this miraculous catch of fish. It's like, you have this suspicion that this person is special, that they have some sort of, sort of authority on your life, and then you do what they tell you to do, and you find that there's an abundance of life that you didn't even know was there. That was kind of what got me over the edge, and finally, okay, I'm going to do this. Well, fast forward about three years, and now I'm on a 30-day silent retreat in preparation for uh, being ordained a deacon, and uh, I'm on day 28, and I just told the story the other night of my talk on prayer uh, on Catholicism 101. Uh, and about 28, day 28, 29, and this wave of, like, sadness and desolation comes over me because I realize maybe for the first time, just how unworthy I am of the call to be a priest. Something just like 28 days, 29 days of of silence and contemplation over God's grace in my life and my own response to that grace just revealed to me how incapable I was. How if I were to pick someone to be a priest, I would be the last one that I would have chosen. Like, you know, you ever have those days where you're like, I'm just not good enough. Right? for what God's calling me to do. And that's how I felt. And the next morning I woke up uh, early before the sunrise and, and prayed over the, the 
uh, the gospel in Luke of the prodigal son while the son came up. And I had another one of these beautiful experiences of God's grace where it was like God was telling me, yeah, I know you're not worthy. That's not the point. Like, I'm calling you. That's what's important. Uh, there's this great phrase, uh, God does not call the equipped, but he equips the called. God doesn't call you because you're going to be really good at that job. He calls you because he has a job for you to do, and he's going to give you the grace to do it. Well, the reason I bring this up is because this gospel today and our first reading from the prophet Isaiah show us sort of the anatomy of a call. When God calls someone for a special, special vocation or a special mission, what that looks like. Prophet Isaiah has this beautiful vision of God's grace, him in the temple and his robes just flowing out the temple and um, seraphim over him and uh, he gets this burning hot coal to touch his lips to purify him because he realizes he's not worthy to be a prophet. And then God says, you know what, I have this mission for you, who should I send? He goes, I'm ready, send me. You know, it's this same dynamic of, of like, okay, God's on my side, he has the power, I'm not worthy, but he's calling me anyway. Same thing happens with Peter. That Jesus gets into his boat, and Peter's like, okay. This was kind of like me when I went into seminary. I left behind some of my plans. I'm like, all right, this Jesus seems pretty compelling. I, I guess I'll, I'll let him drive my boat for a little while. And then he, he tells you to do something that seems a little crazy, like, hey, cast out into the deep. Let's get out of these shallow waters and do something really scary or something really kind of nuts. And he's like, uh, well, we've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything, but at your command, I guess we'll throw down the nets, and then this surprising catch of fish comes, and you're like, okay, this guy's got something, right? I'm really going to follow him. I'm really going to leave behind everything else. But then you realize, I'm a sinner. <laughs> Why did he get in my boat? Why is he calling me? And what's he going to do? What's he going to tell me to do? I'm not capable of it. I don't think I can do it. But this is the point, I think, is that at that moment, when Isaiah says, I'm not worthy, I'm a man of unclean lips, or when Peter says, depart from me, Lord, I am uh, a sinful man. I think that that's the point that God sees that they're ready. They're really ready. They realize that their life is not about them and that they don't have the power to do what God's really calling them to do. There's this woman uh, who I was listening to on a podcast the other day. She was talking about doing God's will. And she said that... Uh, if you can do it, even if it's going to be really hard, even if it might kill you, if you have plans and you feel like, if I work hard enough or if I'm clever enough, I can get that done. I can accomplish that plan. That's probably not God's will. In fact, it's definitely not God's will. When God has a will for you, when God has a plan for you, it's something that you are totally incapable of doing yourself because he's going to help you do it. Look at all the saints, Mother Teresa, leaving her order to start a mission in Calcutta to the poorest of the poor and the destitute. St. Francis of Assisi rebuilding the entire Catholic Church at a time of scandal and crisis. St. Ignatius of Loyola, the same thing, starting a religious order that would span the entire globe, the whole newly discovered new world, and, and send missionaries off into the farthest reaches of the earth. Like, these people can't do that on their own. When God calls you, he gives you a plan, he gives you a blueprint that you have no way, no materials, no capacity, no ability to accomplish it on your own powers because he's going to do it through you. I think that's what he sees in Isaiah and Peter when they get on their knees and say, I cannot do what you're asking me to do. He says, you're ready. But nevertheless, God doesn't negate their human capabilities. He looks at them and he sees the gifts that they have. He sees a man like Isaiah or like St. Peter 
and seize the gifts that he'll use. And I'll just finish with this. Do you ever contemplate Jesus watching those guys from wherever he was at, just looking at those guys in their boats, Peter, James, John, Andrew, their dads, and how they were working together and their attention to detail, how long it must have taken to learn the art of fishing in those days with their nets and the little lead weights and all, all that went into how they fished and how they made their living. It's hard work. And, they, and Jesus probably looked at them and said, I can use that. I can use that teamwork, that diligence, that ability to listen to, to someone uh, that knows more than you in order to learn a craft, to learn a trade. He sees St. Peter and St. John, St. James and St. Andrew. They're just regular workers, regular fishermen. And Jesus sees in them the ability to make them fishers of men, to use their abilities, use their human talents for something divine, something that they could never have imagined, that they could never accomplish on their own. Now contemplate Jesus looking at you and all the gifts that he's given you and the way that you've developed them the way that you're, that you're using them right now as students or in your jobs, in your families, the way that he's prepared you and what he's looking at and he's saying, I can use that. I can use that to glorify my Father. I can use that to bless the people around you. I can use that to make you into who I mean you to be. But we have to cast out into the deep. We have to let go of our plans a little bit in order to be wowed by his grace and then finally realize, I'm incapable, I am unworthy, but with you I can do it.